Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nullcast. Have a quick little episode here in store for you guys. Uh, we're going to talk about a commitment. We're going to talk about a decommitment. Uh, and we're going to get to a couple questions that we still have had left over from uh, a couple episodes now. So uh, we'll jump into it as always. Thanking our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product. Louisiana Hot Sauce, the driving force, the title sponsor of the Nullcast. And with that, Bud, we will jump into tonight's podcast. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with some good news tonight. And the good news for Florida State fans is that FSU landed an offensive lineman. Offensive line alert, right? Kimo Makanol, uh, three-star offensive lineman from Niceville, Florida, Niceville High School, uh, ends up committing to the Seminoles. And I, I think there's some reasons to uh, to be excited about this one. And we'll also get into the discussion of why now? Why, why did Florida State offer and accept his commitment uh, in such short order? So, Lots to talk about tonight uh, with with chemo for sure. Yeah, so um, exciting pickup, you know, three star prospect. Everybody's going to make their own comments about that. But going over to Niceville, going west to Niceville, it's always uh, good to see Florida State maintain some kind of presence uh, that in the part of the state that is west to it, and not just totally cede that to uh, Alabama and other uh, players. I'm not insinuating that Alabama was in on this kid; just saying it's good for Florida State have a presence throughout all the state and, and the Western handle is one that sometimes gets uh, forgotten. Anyway, uh, talented prospect. I mean, the first thing that looks at it is yes, he's Samoan and it's great to kind of extrapolate uh, having a, just a road, you know, road great and off it's a lineman uh, that happens to be Samoan and all the wonderful jokes that we can have with that. But uh, a real wide prospect and a guy who I think is probably a, a guard maybe could grow into a tackle. Maybe he's got the, the, you know, the width dimensions of a tackle, but the height is still kind of something that is in question there. But, but can you bring us a little bit better ideas to some of the real physical readings there and whether or not some kind of definitive knowledge of those readings might've led to the Florida state coaching staff uh, moving on an offer earlier than they did otherwise. Yeah. So Florida state has obviously thrown out a lot of offers this year, uh, at a lot of positions, offensive line included. We, we've kind of gone over what, what what their plan is on the offensive line. They're looking for athleticism. They understand that a lot of times offensive linemen develop late in the cycle. They're not looking for guys who won't be able to help them in two years. They think they'll be a better offensive line recruiting team uh, next year. And I, I tend to believe that there's some validity to that idea uh, because I know Coach Alex Atkins is a good recruiter. Uh, but they had not offered offered chemo yet and uh, until you know this weekend. And ultimately, uh, from what I was told by some sources I have over there, is that they, they liked his film, uh, they liked his aggressiveness, they liked his physicality, and, and they liked uh, you know how fast he got to the second level. And, and he's definitely a guy who plays with good effort, uh, technique, not terrible, but but certainly not uh, not refined, uh, and something that's going to need to continue to be worked on. Uh, but they weren't really sure how big he was, and, and this is just an example, man, of how weird this is this year. Because, like, how do you not know how, how big a kid is? Uh, but they haven't been able to see him in person. They didn't have spring eval period. They didn't have summer camps. They didn't have summer visits, really. Like, there's so many, like, the majority of their board, they've never seen in person. I think that, that's fairly safe to say. Ultimately, they like the film. And I was told that they got some film or some measurements that they thought were kind of verified ish. You know, so whether that's uh, photos from Niceville's coaching staff or, you know, whatever, they were very impressed by by his his, his wingspan and, and by his arm length. Uh, I had a source tell me, eighty two wing, thirty four arm length. 
Could that be a little inflated? I think perhaps if it's anywhere close, that's pretty good. Uh, and especially when, when you look at some of the uh, some of the arm lengths and, and wingspans at the recent NFL Combine, very impressive uh, relative to those. And one of the inefficiencies that Florida State has had to find and exploit, I think, this cycle, uh, because this is a really good offensive tackle recruiting cycle at the top. It, it's a pretty deep top. And yet Florida State's not really in on any of these top guys. Not realistically. I mean, they're, they're, they're in on Amarius Mims, but their chance of getting Amarius Mims are the same chances as yours or mine. One of the inefficiencies I think they're having to try to find is finding dudes who maybe aren't the tallest, uh, but who do have the length of a tall guy. And, and one of the phrases they use over there, I know, is you only recruit length, or excuse me, you only recruit height to get length. And if these measurements are true, and, and my guess is that they're probably close, because otherwise I don't think Florida State would have just decided to take the kid based on that. I think he might have, have measurements that are a little bit bigger and better than, than what his height weight suggests. Now, I know allegedly 6'5", 285. Watching him on film, I kind of have a hard time believing that. Can't say it's not true because I haven't seen him in person, but I think I had some of the same questions that the staff probably had as far as his actual size. But let's say, like, what if he's actually 6'3"? You know, I, I don't think his body is actually, like, that wide. But his, his like, like, you know, you, you mentioned the, if you include the width of the wingspan, that actually is kind of impressive. So. Uh, I think they're pretty happy over there that they got him with the athleticism and, and with the aggressiveness. He's a player who I think is a guard, but you know, honestly, could play tackle. I, I think if, if those measurements are are legit, tackle is a position where I think increasingly we are seeing you don't necessarily have to have the best athleticism as long as you have the the length, especially in in the spread systems that everybody, including Mike Norvell, right now. Uh, is running so that they seem to be pretty happy with the pickup I, I think he's a guy who you could see actually being a starter for you down the line and, and not getting beaten out by somebody who's a higher quality player uh, next year at least not immediately and so that's that's a good thing and you know, they, they beat out some uh, some quality teams for his commitment and it happened very quickly like he committed almost instantly after he was offered and uh, that's I think that shows his commitment to being a, a seminal it beat out some decent teams, and they also had some some okay teams sniffing around him as well. Yeah, I think what Louisville, Missouri, Miss State had all offered uh, was was Texas not rumored to be in on this kid uh, to some extent. Uh, yeah, and I know A and M had either offered or kind of pseudo offered. I, like, is he a take at A and M right now? I I don't know about that. Maybe I mean, I'm not gonna say he's not, but like that's kind of that that range, like the the A and M Texas. Maybe Clemson range is where I, I don't think he'd get a take there at, at this point. Not not without having him see them. But ultimately, that's still that's a decent decent list. And, and to be honest here, like Missouri, Mississippi State, South Carolina, um, Louisville, like those are the schools pr- primarily that Florida State's recruiting against right now. It's a new staff that doesn't have relationships with kids for the most part, at least not in person ones. They're very behind the eight ball in that. Really due to no fault of their own with the whole virus stuff and they're having to try to make do with it. We'll we'll try to get to the point while also being selective with our words here. Obviously I'm not trying to slight any of these kids that got offers to Florida State. They're really good players. That doesn't happen easily. A lot of work tied to that. But I do think that maybe you can identify some of these kids as uh as really talented but not like 
kids that are going to necessarily walk to a camp and just uh, blow away the eyeball test or, or kids that are maybe have clear cut, obvious NFL potential. Um, uh, again, not picking on anybody, but maybe Joshua Burrell is an example of this. A guy who's got a big frame, big physical kid, maybe a little bit faster than you or I give him credit for. But again, not not necessarily like Clemson's number one offer, not necessarily uh, a place where Alabama's going to get involved. I think Florida State's kind of got to be selective with its battles, find these three four-star prospects uh, that have a lot of upside, but at the same time have a have a decent ceiling with which you know you can, uh, or excuse me, a decent a decent floor with what you know you can work with and and kind of build off of, and at the same time maybe have the ceiling to grow into something special. I, I think that's right, Edgar. You know, I had a, I, actually a couple conversations with, with guys over there, and, and I, I brought that point up, and and the first guy I talked to about it really kind of took offense to it, right? And I said, you know, like I I think you know a guy like Burrell, I, I don't necessarily see that crazy NFL upside with him. Right. Cause I, I have questions about his speed, but I think the chance that he ends up being a really good college player are pretty high. I think he has a lot of good traits and the guy kind of took offense to that. But I talked to another guy over there. He goes, actually, I, I think that's a, I think that's a dead on observation, man. Like we're trying to get what we can get this year. And we do want some guys that have high upside, but we also need to make sure we get some guys who can play, you know, and, and guys who aren't going to come in and just be zeros and, and total. You know, total boomer bust. So we 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 need we need some certainty with this class, which tells me, by the way, maybe they don't think there's as much floor and certainty on this existing roster as some of us do. You know, if you're going for more floor prospects this year, after we thought you had some floor prospects the last two years, maybe they don't think that there's enough floor on this roster right now, and they're worried about it bottoming out. Troubling, troubling ideas, but yeah, yeah, possible, certainly. But yeah, I, I think. I think Kimo's a guy maybe like that. Although if he if, if these length measurements are, are are accurate or close to accurate, I, I can't say that, that he doesn't have you know upside like that. But I think there's a couple guys in this class uh, like that who are uh, who are interesting in that way. Let's go ahead and pause for a second to thank our friends Matt Thompson, those guys over at Madso. They do an awesome job. We're really happy to see uh, what what date is Central opening back up again? I believe it is uh, targeted for the 13th of August. Now it looks like the season's probably going to start on time. We have the ACC uh, meeting with, the, with their ADs on Tuesday. Maybe we'll hear something Wednesday. Not about a direct schedule, but maybe about a scheduling format. Could be kind of cool. Maybe a little, little hint about a podcast later this week we'll have to talk about when their scheduling format comes out. I, I think it'll be pretty close to what we talked about about two weeks ago with the conference only. Uh, but really excited to see Madso being joined again by, by Central. And Township, and uh, that's just an awesome trio of, of restaurants, and, and they've supported us the whole way, and we really appreciate you all supporting them. So for some good news there, maybe to some bad news, uh, FSU did lose a commitment over the weekend when uh, when offensive lineman Jake Slaughter uh, flipped to the Gators. This didn't really come as a surprise, I don't think, to most people who were, who were following along. Uh, it wasn't a lock that he was going to flip, I don't think, uh, at least not until he could visit over the summer. But with no summer visits, uh, be kind of became a question, would he actually flip without taking that, that, uh, that more you know, full visit? And ultimately, he did. Uh, I spoke to some sources at Port State, and they said, no, we didn't let him walk. We definitely wanted to keep him. We liked him better than y'all, meaning like the ranking services liked him. We, we thought he was you know, a really bright kid. 4.0 GPA and somebody who has a whole lot of intangibles to go with a, a, a pretty decent uh, game. Obviously, he wasn't super impressive at, at the camps that we saw 
I, I don't physically think he's a whole lot to write home about. Doesn't mean it can't become something to write home about. But uh, I, I think Florida State kind of is a little more stung by this one uh, than than maybe I would be. However, I will note uh, that they were not taken by surprise, right? They know that Slaughter grew up a Gators fan. His family is Florida fans. Florida's obviously in a better position than Florida State is right now. You know, he, he lives in Ocala, so that's, that's pretty damn close to home. Not that Tallahassee is far away. But yeah, that, n- not, a, uh, not a guy they wanted to see go. Not a, not a crushing blow to the class, though, either. I, I don't think this makes or breaks their class. And it was weird going on the Florida boards, and their fans seemed kind of bummed about it. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I get it. But at the same time, like clearly it's somebody their staff wanted to flip and somebody that uh, the FSU staff wanted to keep. So you know, maybe Florida fans should be a little more excited about that one. It kind of leads to the question, what do you do now on the offensive line recruiting? I, I think Florida State is probably going to want to take one more interior guy, even if you think of Chemo as an interior guy, and, and I do. At this point, I don't necessarily know if he's going to be a center, so we'll see. Uh, we know they still want to take at least two tackles. Rodor, you know, Buckley, maybe guys who fit that mold. On the interior, I'm not really sure who they go after now. They have, have Michael Malinsky. I don't really think FSU's trending for him, and I don't necessarily love his game. So we'll see what they do there. Uh, but but it, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch down the stretch, man. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, uh, it is bizarre, as important as it will be for a character like Rod or, or a player that's ranked as highly as he is, uh, that in my opinion, at least is, is reflective as to how well overall a lot of people will judge this class. This is just a fan base that's dying, uh, for a, you know, bona fide tackle prospect and uh, not, again, not expecting to sign uh, you know, the number two tackle prospect in the country or something like that. But I do think there's a reasonable expectation for a real live tackle and or uh, is kind of the best one that fits that bill. Has there been any movement with Auburn on that? I know, uh, you know, there was some rumors maybe a week ago or so that they were on the verge of offering that maybe they were trying to slow play him out of a kid for uh, North Carolina or Virginia. Has, uh, has there been any movement regarding Auburn and or? Not, not that I've seen. Uh, the, the one thing about a word that, that I will say, which is kind of concerning, and, and I don't have access to his, to his transcripts, but I have seen others kind of say that like, Hey, you know, the, the transcripts are, are an issue. And my concern here is like, what school would probably be in best position to know about, about that? It would be the, the local school who is obviously a, a huge fan of. And, you know, maybe Florida State is taking a chance here, assuming that those, like, if, if the rumors or reporting about the transcripts, uh, are, are true, if he gets them corrected may, may, or, or improved, then maybe Florida State's, uh, you know, faith in him by offering early pays off, but it does concern me a little bit that Auburn has not offered to this point. And cause I think, I think or is, is at least as good, if not better than some of these off tackles at, at, at Florida or that Auburn took from the state of Florida. So it could be a, a situation there where Auburn actually has superior information than Florida state does get given their, their locality. Uh, and if his grades get better, then maybe Auburn, swoops in and offers. And at that point, I have to think it's probably a wrap and unless FSU is able to make such a good relationship with him that, that he overcomes his, uh, his love for Auburn and, and wanting to stay at a state close to home. But that's, that could be a pipe dream or, or it could not be. We'll have to see. And this will be a good, interesting test of, of the backup plans FSU has if they do need to do something with that. Speaking of superior information, but I know that 
you uh, were able to work with two individuals that we hold highly in regard and were able to give you fantastic information, uh, both in the process of originally purchasing a house and then a, a refinance. So why don't we take a second here to uh, let our customers know about the proud partnership that we have with Legendary Home Loans. Absolutely, buddy. Uh, so my home loan and my refi through Legendary with, with, with Shannon Young, with Chad. And I actually just got, uh, did you see the email today we got from them? Yeah. that pretty cool. Uh, shout out to Austin and Jennifer on their home purchase. And also shout out to Clayton on his home purchase. We'll be sending y'all out some t-shirts in the near future here. And that is, I don't think we're at 70 yet. I, I need to text Shannon to figure out exactly what numbers, but I know we've been over 60 now for a couple. So we, we might be creeping up on 70 home loans and refis through Legendary, through, through Shannon and Chad. That's awesome. And we really appreciate their support of the Nolcast and uh, you know, proud to be aligned with them for years to come. All right, bud. Uh, I know that we're all trying to figure out exactly what this year is going to look like. And we've spent a whole lot of time talking about scheduling and I don't want to, uh, to talk a whole lot more about that until we have something concrete, which sounds like it may be coming later in the week. But uh, one thing where it is starting to get interesting because I feel like we're a little bit more confident about football so we can transition the conversation away from scheduling to maybe more impactful things like the actual distribution of snaps and how uh, teams are going to have to be more reliant upon broader swaths of their roster than they ever have been before. And the idea that some of these kids, uh, you know, it, it may not be a crazy situation where you look out there and you got a, you got a walk on guard starting one game or something like that. Uh, it's just a situation where hard to say exactly how many kids will play, but it is fairly easy to say that maybe the, uh, the totality of the roster will be, checked in years uh, like this one where maybe they haven't been ever previously before. Yeah. So you guys can check my story out on 24 seven sports.com. It was called all hands on deck, but in talking to some coaches, they're like, man, we have all this stuff we want to run. And yet we realize it's not going to happen. Right. Like our goal in practice and considering like, there's a pretty good chance that we have uh, shortened practice time this year. And I don't mean like hours, but that's possible, I guess. But, uh, like short in terms of the number of days of, of preseason camp we have, that's possible to happen this year. And you, like, there's a really good chance that you have like an all American left tackle starting next to like a, a fourth string true freshman walk on guard that you don't really know how the COVID is going to affect your team this year. But I think you have to anticipate missing good numbers of your players for, for decent stretches of the year. And, and when I was talking to these guys, it just struck me about how simplistic they are planning on making things and how it's not really important that we add new plays and new wrinkles and things. It's really important that everybody on the roster understands the base stuff. And so you might have the most simplistic season of college football schemes we've had in probably 30 or 40 years this season. It, it, it really is going to be interesting. And there's a lot of different layers to this, man. It's not just scheme stuff. When do you decide to, to, to put in your backups in a game? Now, my argument was, I think you should put them in early, right? Because if that happens, they'll get some, they'll get some reps. And you might need those guys to have some game reps uh, when you actually need them later in the year. The counter to that might be, what happens if the opposing running back has COVID and you guys don't know it, and then much more of your team gets exposed and potentially infected? So like, do you try to not sub guys in? 
are you going to bring your team to the locker room at halftime? Or are you going to just kind of go to a shaded area or maybe just hang out in the end zone like you do in, in Pop Warner games? Like, do, do you want to, you want to bus everybody to the game? Okay. But how many buses? I, I doubt you're going to take just three buses like, like maybe you do sometimes now. I mean, you might need to take seven, eight buses to make sure everybody is spaced out. Are you going to have, what about roommate assignments? I guarantee you some of these roommate assignments for the fall are going to be switched around a lot. A whole lot, man. I don't think you're going to have quarterbacks as suite mates anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you think you're going to have a defensive lineman suite? There's no way they're going to have Marvin room with Dirt and, and Cooper. Like those guys have all got to be paired with different positions, so that you don't have one one single position wiped out. Man, it's just it's crazy. It's, it's crazy some of the ramifications and what we're going to see. And like I was watching uh, uh, Rangers, the team that I'm particularly fond of. Their game was delayed like two and a half hours because they hadn't gotten their COVID tests back from the day before or two days before. Uh, obviously, we're seeing what's happening with the Marlins right now, and hopefully that'll be. Uh, as contained as possible and not derail efforts otherwise. So uh, I just think that anything's possible. You may see games that are delayed because of information. You may see, you know, pairings uh, both on the road or, or like you said, you may see a, a, a an All-American tackle paired with a walk-on guard. It's just going to be a crazy year, an absolute crazy year. I, I think there will be days at Florida State's practice where Alex Atkins calls the place. Because what what happens if Norvell and Dillingham, kind of your presumptive one two play caller wise, what 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 happens if if they go down? I mean, maybe you probably move Odell to head coach for the game just because that's what they've done in recent years. Who's your play caller on offense? It's probably Atkins because he has experience calling plays, right? I mean, like you're gonna have like who's your backup defensive coordinator? What if Fuller's out? You're gonna have to simulate and rep this kind of stuff. At practice, and with all these things, uh, and with probably a limited amount of preseason practice, coaches say they want six weeks. Realistically, I think that they can probably get the teams ready to like to to collect these checks and play these games in three or four weeks. But it's going to be pretty simple, and so that that's one reason I've been struggling with. Okay, how much of Mike Norvell's scheme do we want to preview this year? Because how much are they actually going to be able to run? I I have my doubts, especially with a, a team that's doing a fresh install. It's not like like everybody already knows the basics and they just need to add a couple of wrinkles. I mean, this is all brand new to them to the extent that they've actually been together on the field. And obviously, they've been doing the Zoom stuff, but that's that's not necessarily uh, the same. And, and there, there are so many considerations for this. And yet, I think the considerations are largely born out of the sport pushing forward and saying, we need to get these checks. And so they're going to learn to, to deal with, with, with the issues and, and have to overcome them. Which is probably a good thing, um, at, at least for, for the health of the sport, if, if not the athletes. You mentioned the Marlins and also Lou Williams, dude, uh, up by you in Atlanta. I, I, I want to hear, I, I know we have a restaurant sponsor already and a great one. I, I kind of want to hear about, about these Magic City chicken wings. Are, are, are you familiar with these? I am. Uh, I'm familiar with the establishment, certainly, and the uh, idea that someone would go there completely for chicken wings is not... Uh, you know, it's not total BS. Uh, and and uh, Magic City is an Atlanta establishment. And, uh, you know, the idea that you would be going there to say your your final goodbye to somebody is, uh, I can believe it. I can believe it, certainly. But uh, it does kind of highlight, the, you know, how how soft of a bubble this is, all is that we're trying to enter. And 
Also, but it's been interesting uh, over the last week or so, I've seen more universities just kind of go straight to the, like, you know what, we're putting the football team in a bubble, uh, which was all the talk two months ago about, oh, we don't want to do that. It's not a great look with, uh, you know, for obvious reasons and some of the complications that come with it. But it seems as though the, uh, you know, the powers that be are becoming more open to doing things like that to try to get the season off off the ground, certainly. So at a certain point, if you're just willing to do certain things, you're just willing to say, okay, these kids aren't really at like, like students. I mean, they're students kind of a name only. And we're just going to admit that like, they're basically employees who play football. Uh, and and we'll, we'll go ahead and, and just kind of take the short term gain and, and, and I feel like we're getting very close to not even skirting around the issue. Yeah. And just, uh, and, and just having a, a level of honesty surrounding this conversation that's never really been there. So for a while, it was like, there's no way we're going to play games without fans in the stands because then it would look like it's un- like it's unsafe to have fans in the stands, but it's safe to have players playing, right? And then that kind of got thrown out the window, and then some of these admins started changing their tune. And then it was, well, as long as we have students on campus and re- you know, regular classes going on. But then that kind of went out the window too. And now you actually have college coaches telling me, I hope we just go all online because it'll actually reduce the chance that our guys get infected. Okay. I mean, fair. That's, that's very fair. It's also counter to the narrative that we were told in just a couple weeks ago. I think there's some schools that are probably going to have kids on campus and then, you know, might pull away. Like, like when they had their first major outbreak might say, okay, we're going to go all, all online now. How many kids go home in that case? How many kids stay living on campus? I think you have a decent amount of kids who probably would go home uh, in that case. And so maybe that actually makes things a little bit safer if you reduce that on, on campus. But I don't know if bubbling these guys is realistic. I think like running out of hotel is probably not super realistic. I think perhaps bubbling them in a dorm might be. The problem is MLB put out like a 179-page report on how to handle COVID, okay? And it took four days for the Marlins to be like, hmm, you know what? We could follow the protocols or we could have dramatically group text everybody and we'll have our shortstop decide if it's cool if they all play or not. You know, that's not really a great indication to me when you got millions of dollars on the line and these guys can't seem to follow the rules. And then you have Lou Williams, who's essentially on like bereavement leave, right? He, he was, he was, he had an excused absence from the NBA bubble to go to a funeral. And instead, he goes to get takeout chicken wings from a strip joint. With millions of dollars on the line, these guys can't seem to follow the rules. How confident are you that college kids who are not going to be in a bubble, and if it is a bubble, it's not going to be a similar bubble. Like this, They're not going to be able to like not leave the dorm. You know that, that, That's really not realistic in my opinion. How confident are you that these college kids are going to be able to follow the rules and that everybody else on campus in, in the spirit of having college football will also follow the rules? Like the chance that they're not going to party and hang out with, with, with their friends and you know, go next door, hang out with their neighbors is real low in my opinion, real low. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's part of the thing is that you, you bring the college element into it and you bring the idea that, you know, like, you're asking 19 year old kids to make these great decisions. Lou Williams uh, is not all that different in age than I am. I mean, I think he was a freshman. He was a, like, he was a phenomenal Atlanta basketball player and somebody that you heard about uh, when I was growing up, but yeah, he's 34 years old. So he's, I mean, 
that's that's about as aged and uh, a veteran a player as you're going to see in the NBA. And uh, if you're at that point in your life and you're still making decisions that could possibly justify aspects of your season, it's going to be real tough to you know get frustrated when the when the backup quarterback is not living a life that's indicative of, of uh, you know not exposure or, or putting anybody else in any kind of exposure to COVID. Um, yeah, I, this is clearly a concern. Like, the, if you want to know what what's keeping these college coaches up at night, it's recruiting, it's figuring out a way to run practice. But mainly, man, and I don't even think they're worried about the optics. I really don't like. I think they're all leaving that to their administrators. I think what they're worried about is how do they get their guys to not act like college students at all and just basically be like football playing robots for four months. That that's going to be tough, man. Uh, I would probably classify as damn near impossible, but yeah, yeah. Good luck with it. Good luck with it. What's not impossible is getting excellent legal representation from Travis Johnson. Travis Johnson, board certified family law attorney, only two hundred eighty of those in the state out of more than one hundred and ten thousand attorneys. So that's pretty rarefied air uh, in which Travis finds himself. Travis Johnson, the Metter and Johnson law firm, more than a decade of experience in the practice of family law. Whether it's just kind of your standard. Smaller divorce, or if you got a multi-million dollar divorce, Travis takes those as well. Cases throughout the state, you can reach Travis again at the Metter and Johnson Law Firm, 850-435-9019. Travis is a twice-over grad of Florida State and a devoted follower and supporter of the Nolcast. If you are a Nolcast listener and you give Travis a call, make sure you mention the show. You will get a free initial consult. And also, if you need it, we know these, tr- these trying times with COVID have not gone away. He offers flexible payment rates for y'all and, and we'll work something out with you. Again, cases throughout the state. It's Travis Johnson, proud supporter of the Nolcast, family law, board certified expert, 850-435-9919. Let's get back into these uh, listener questions. Which which uh, which did we uh, we leave off with last time? Yeah, this is an interesting one. So the question, and, and I'll, I'll, you can answer first here, uh, would players not playing in the spring help or hurt Florida State? Hmm. This is, I think we're assuming this is going to, like like a question assumes a spring season. Yeah, I, I think it takes it to spring, and then maybe it's the idea that some of the better players or uh, those that consider themselves higher draft picks would not be playing. But and I had a, a bit of a difference of opinion on this maybe two, three episodes ago as to what level of player would choose not to play in it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you can extrapolate like the Clemson game. Is is Etienne going to be there? No, is. Trevor going to be there? No. Does that really mean there's a different outcome in that game? I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't see any path that that would be the case. You know, I, I think there's the legit optimism in having a really damn good defense, and that would be fun to see that be the case for Florida State. So I, I think uh, that they that might not be the case if you have some kind of delay and it goes into a second period of, of time this year. I, I know we can sit here and think about how games it might positively impact. On the whole, I think Florida State's well-served if we play in the fall and you don't have any of the defensive pieces that have a chance to make this an elite defense sitting there debating as to whether or not they're going to play. I, I think that that's fair. Um, you also have to kind of think about the opponents on Florida State's schedule, right? Like, would you beat Clemson if Clemson's guys decided not to play? I, Probably not, but I think your chance does go up. I mean, w- would you trade not having Marvin Wilson and Tamara and Terry for them not having SEN and Trevor Lawrence? I think the answer there is obvious. Now, I'm still picking Clemson in that game, 
but maybe not quite as confident, I guess. With Miami, I mean, do you think Derek King plays? Do you think Quincy Roche or, gosh, uh, Greg Rousseau or Brevin Jordan or those guys play? I, I think Florida State would go from being an underdog against Miami to potentially a favorite in that ballgame, to be honest. Um, against Pitt, you got a lot of guys who are draft eligible who are big-time defensive linemen. Now, are they all first-rounders? I don't know. Maybe not. That would be an interesting one for me. With Florida, Like, is Kyle Trask good enough NFL-wise at this point? I'm not, not trying to say he's not good enough NFL, but like, is he proven NFL enough to where he would sit out spring? I think maybe, maybe not. Probably not. There are some guys they would lose who would be tough. I think you can argue it actually Florida State's odds of like an eight-win season could go up slightly, but I don't think it goes up by a ton. Wake Forest would probably lose Carlos Basham. Who else? Would, like would Louisville would, would probably lose Tutu Atwell. Um, Syracuse, I don't know who they would lose, to be honest. Boston College would lose a guy. Would West Virginia lose anyone? I'm trying to think about, about seniors on their team or, or guys who are, are no doubt draftees. I don't think they have anybody who's just a no doubter at this point. This is a, it's a really fascinating question, man. It's like, it really makes you consider who the other teams might lose. Yeah. It's, uh, it is a good one and it gives you a good idea as to, you know, at least an idea as to what the schedule would look like and how it might be impacted. Now, again, uh, we're still, at least for now, kind of grasping at what a schedule might look like. Uh, this question came in from Twitter. Uh, Jack writes, with the big three routinely getting beat on the Sunshine scorecard and FSU having a greater presence in states other than Florida for the cycle due to the lack of ties, is it more likely that Florida State will attempt to recruit nationally like in Ohio State or try to regain a stronger presence uh, within the state of Florida. The The end of the question ended up getting cut off, and I'm kind of taking a guess as to what he was saying at the end there, but uh, that's Jack's question. All right, I'm going to counter this uh, with a question to you. Who are your favorite teams who don't win a whole lot of games who recruit nationally? I see the point that you're making there, and I, I think really by the time that you would be a force of uh, you know, really being able to throw state around, weight around in-state and uh, and be a dominant force there that you would also probably have a little bit more of a national appeal. I mean, it's uh, you kind of got to pick your battles here in this class. Like we talked about with some of the guys that are solid prospects that not maybe, uh, you know, I displacing physical numbers or camp performances or whatever it may be and kind of get your footing for a stronger class in 21 and on. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You have got to do a better job of recruiting in the state of Florida going forward this year. They get an obvious pass just, because it, it for, for very obvious reasons and you don't have the relationships in the state. But one of the reasons that makes Florida State a great job is that you do have the, the state of Florida in your backyard. And right now, some of the teams in Florida, Florida State being one, honestly, Florida kind of being another. Miami has really picked it up uh, dur- during the, the, you know, the quarantine stuff and, and they're, they're killing it on the recruiting trail right now. So even though I know a lot of our listeners, based on the comments, don't think Manny Diaz can coach Lick, uh, they, they certainly are doing a really good job in recruiting, but Florida State, if they're going to have success under Mike Norvell, uh, and it's going to be a slow burn, as we've said, I think this is a legitimate rebuild, uh, not, not a, a reload. But if they're going to have success, they're going to have to make sure that they do a better job recruiting in the state of Florida. Uh, right now, they're they're lagging pretty far behind, but Florida 
uh, and Miami as far as the top kids in the state. And I don't think that they can solve that problem by going out of region more. I, I would also direct Jack, uh, I assume he's listened, but at this point, because most, most times you've sent in questions, you've been a listener. I would direct him to our discussion. Uh, la- was it, it was one of the, one of the two shows last week when we discussed the, uh, the kind of fool's errand that is attempting to pipeline Louisiana. Because eventually when you get back to where you want to be, you're going to want to get elite kids and you're just not going to beat LSU for, for the kids at LSU actually wants in the state. And eventually you're not going to want very many kids from Louisiana who LSU doesn't actually want right now. You're taking a lesser quality of player because you think they can help your football team. And you're probably right about that. If you're the staff, eventually you're not going to want to take kids of this quality uh, that, that they're taking out of Louisiana right now for the most part. And so you're going to need to, uh, you're going to need to do a better job of recruiting in Florida and actually winning those battles for those superstars in your backyard. Derek asks an interesting question. Uh, he says, with this season likely having few, if any, fans in the stands, is there any chance we get some in-game commentary from you guys during a game or two this season? Seems like this was discussed as a possibility a year or two back. Would love to hear you guys give us, uh, NOLCast supporters, an in-depth breakdown via live stream, if at all possible. Hope all is well with both of you and look forward to seeing you soon. We'll certainly appreciate the message, Derek. And uh, uh, quite a quite an interesting idea as well. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's possible. I, I don't think it's going to be something we do for every game. I, I th- I'd like to try it out for a game this year. We have to figure out which which platform uh, we, we want to do it on, You know what kind of response we get from the listeners, You know, like how big the audience would be, and, and if it's, you know, if it's worth our time, um, quite honestly, but like it's something we could play around with, and and Ingram and I can discuss it. I'm, I'm not against it. I, I think it could be actually really interesting and sort of an added experience. Uh, you know, you, we'd have to figure out a way to kind of sync it up with the broadcast because I assume people would not want to like people are not going to listen to us instead of watching the game. If you can make it work where we're talking while the game is going. Maybe, but I don't know what the audience is for that, you know. And if you're watching with with like family and friends, we absolutely love everybody listening to the Nolcast. We also understand that you know we kind of cater to a specific type of fan, and and we love, you know, I mean, we we, we do we do five digits an episode easy, and that's cool. But y'all are almost certainly all diehards for the most part, and so we 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 understand if not everybody you're watching the game with are also wanting our commentary over the over the TV broadcast commentary. So we're going to have to figure out a way to kind of sync that up and, and make it non-intrusive. Maybe that's we jump on and give some commentary during commercial breaks, uh, maybe quarterly commentary you know, after the first halftime, after the third quarter, that type of deal. Maybe we could actually mash those up and, and replace the uh, the instant reaction pod for a week. You know, just say, okay, here's what we thought of the first quarter. Here was our live thoughts after the second quarter. Here's what we thought after the third quarter. Blah 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 blah. I, I'm open to it. You know, I'm, I'm not opposed. I just uh, we need to figure out how we make that work and and to kind of see what the audience size would be. Yeah, uh, I don't think we'd ever have live commentary as there's too much uh, you know dis- concerns about rights dis- uh, distributions and uh, impeding upon groups of people who paid absolute tons of money to have exclusivity to live sport. Uh, but there may be something where we would have, like Bud said, a pregame show, a halftime show, and then a postgame show, and then kind of roll that into one final product at the end of uh, a game. But uh, we'll continue to keep you up to date, Derek, and 
hopefully that's something that we can toy around and, and uh, play with this year. So final question of the night comes from Donovan. Uh, pretty decent uh, size question here. You have both shared your disdain for the targeting rule at various times in the last two to three years, which I've appreciated. It's a rule that I feel is being enforced with uh, wild regularity on seemingly normal plays and is, quite frankly, ruining games. The Ohio State-Clemson playoff matchup was a good example where a weak targeting penalty resulted in a huge momentum shift, yet every week we listen to self-righteous announcers claim that the play needs to be taken out of the game while they watch a super slow-motion replay of an offensive player lowering his head a fraction of an inch into a defender's helmet. More often than not targeting is the result of malicious is not the result of malicious intent, but rather the random and geometric collisions that happen while grown men are trying to tackle one another. I'm not suggesting we should go back to the days where a linebacker could spear a receiver in the face mask as he attempts to catch the ball over the middle, but there has to be a better way to implement the rule that is not as intrusive as the current setup. What are your suggestions? So I've actually written on this several times. I think all of them are back at SB Nation. I have not written on this subject yet for 24-7, but, but I, will, I will intend to do so. First of all, I, I, I don't know if you guys realize this, but the rule was passed this year. It's something I've advocated for uh, every single season that they've had the targeting rule, I think. Uh, and that is that the, uh, the perp walk they make these guys do to the locker room after they get ejected for a targeting foul is no more. Um, now, if you get ejected for targeting, you actually get to stay on the sideline with your teammates. You, you don't have to go and act like some villain. I think that's sort of them realizing that, hey, man, like, okay, we, we get it. Most of the time, it's not intentional. Intentional, you can stay on the sideline. Whereas, if you get in the, if you get the the personal foul ejection for having multiple uh, unsportsmanlikes or you know fighting game misconduct type type ejections, then you do have to go to the locker room. Still, the way that I would implement this is basically exactly what I wrote in this article. So, I would encourage you all to write or to to Google like how to fix the targeting rule, explanation, but Elliot. And, and check that out. But my, my general thought was like, we need to have something almost like college basketball has where it's a flagrant one or a flagrant two uh, type of foul uh, with a you know flagrant one being a certain level of punishment. That's where like if it happened, okay, if that happens again in the game, you are ejected. So we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of remove all doubt of that like you're going to have two accidental targeting type shots in the same game. Uh, now, with flagrant two, I, I think that's the one where you could have the immediate ejection. That, and in that case, it would be if you are clearly launching at a guy's head, like where the head was when you launched. So if you go low and the guy ducks into you, I think we need to, to judge that and, and assign you the less flagrant of the targeting fouls. Okay. Like you made an attempt to go low, the offensive player lowered himself into you. It does suck that you hit head to head, but like he's kind of equally culpable to that, especially if the guy is not jumping. You know, if you're going into a ball carrier and you go low, and then all of a sudden he ducks his head into you, he's kind of a, he's lowering himself into your strike zone, and oftentimes you were going for his like rib cage, you know, waistline, and he's ducked himself into that. That's on him, in my opinion, and you should not be ejected for that. Uh, and I think it's arguable whether you should even be penalized for that. Whereas if you are clearly like, like head hunting a guy and going for a kill shot, uh, and, and the guy doesn't duck into you and you're just, you know, you're going for it, then I'm actually cool with you being ejected. So I do think those are kind of hits that we need to get out of, out of football because I think that 
that causes a lot of parents, uh, you know, kind of your generic soccer mom example, to say, I don't want my kid playing football. You know, th- th- those are the violent stuff that the old ESPN jacked up highlights. So I, I think a two-tiered system would, would be good here. I think Florida State would benefit from that. I mean, Trey Marshall might still get ejected sometimes, but, <laughs> you know, maybe. Maybe not quite as much, um, but that would be that would be interesting for me to see. What do you think about about a two tiered system? No, I think it's great. I mean, I think you know, yellow card, red card. Uh, I think you know, in soccer, you there are instances where you get a straight red, and uh, it certainly sounds like you have the ability to assess that if if you think. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I don't want to make it too simplistic, but it is pretty obvious the times where you've got somebody who's just playing free safety, uh, you know, playing center field and is running up, head ducked, and is just trying to turn himself into a missile. And then there's a lot of plays where you're sitting there responding and, you know, you're trying to figure out where a guy is. And, and in the complex, you know, geometric math equation that uh, our listener referenced, your foreheads and his foreheads run into each other. And that's, that's just football. I mean, it doesn't mean that we need to stop and, and review it in, you know, 30, 30 per second speed film and try to figure out if somebody's foreheads uh, glance. So, I wish that there was some kind of way to go about this. Unfortunately, you have to put faith in people making you know decisions, which uh, doesn't always work out in an in-game situation. But I do think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of room for improvement in this, and that uh, there is you know that of which is obvious, and then there that is which is maybe unfortunate, uh, and which could be garnered a you know a second second rule or a second option at at breaking a rule before it turned into a permanent ejection and real, you know, I don't want to drag on, but the idea of not making somebody take the perp walk. I mean, like <laughs> the, one of the dumbest things about that Nigel Bradham hit that we always reference all the time is this, this official comes running over to Bradham and, you know, acting like he's a, a ref league uh, softball official trying to give him the, whole, you know, you're out of here motion and stuff like that, which, uh, you know, certainly at a moment like that where everybody was, everybody's uh, temperatures are running pretty hot. That's just another way to, to make an ex, you know, make a, a larger experience and larger episode of something that doesn't have to be. Exactly right. Um, now the only question I, I have here or, or the potential pushback that, that I've received for this, there, there have actually been two pushbacks on this. And I know this really isn't FSU related, but that, you know, it's a question we got. I think it's kind of a neat one. A, it does, it does involve a certain amount of judging intent. Right, like, like you're having to judge sort of like the initial intent of like where the player was trying to hit before the guy ducked into you. Okay, that's fair. Uh, and also, I think the other counter argument is, is that, uh, and of course, like if refs screw up things, as is the intent thing could really mess it up for them. Fair. The other part that, that we get pushed back on when I write this piece or, or when I tweak this piece is basically that they don't like the idea of even more stoppages of play, even more reviews, because this would definitely take a while with the reviews. I don't know that you could do this within 60 seconds. You might have to have multiple camera angles. You might have to slow it down. You might have to even take and you know, draw some lines. Like you ever, filmed, you ever filmed your golf swing? You're like, oh, wow, look, look, look at my angle of attack here and am I on, am I on plane? We'd kind of be like, is Trey Marshall on plane? I get those, but yet I still think, man, like if we're talking about suspending a guy and taking him off the field to play, and maybe missing the, the first half of next of next week's game, I think it's worth worth taking the time to get it right. Run another commercial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or I wonder if you could just run a play under review. You know, I mean, I, I know you don't want to get into a habit of having a bunch of guys off, but if you need to move head head with a game for one play while Trey Marshall isn't in there, then 
you know, that can be basically a review time. I, I know that there's the idea. You're very soccer, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I'd love to see the sport continue to move uh, and the game continue to move forward without necessarily having to, you know, get to everybody breaking down Zapruder film three to four times a game and trying to figure out whether or not this safety should be kicked out. So there it is. There it is. Well, there's another uh, episode of the Nolcast in the books. Certainly appreciate the support that we've received recently, uh, both from five-star reviews and, and just the general support of our sponsors. Uh, as always, thank you very much for the time that you give us. Look forward to doing another one for you, maybe at the end of this week when we have a little bit more certainty as to what scheduling will look like. And for Bud Elliott and myself, Ingram Smith, certainly appreciate your listenership, and we'll talk to you soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles. Thank you.